The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Heritage. All right. How you guys doing today? Good, good. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the lovely folks in back have Bibles available for those who need one. So just raise your hand up high and we'll get one to you. A couple of quick announcements before we get rolling. The Criterion Girls' Night Out. This is a fundraiser for the Pregnancy Center. And uh, today is the very last day to sign up for that. So uh, you ladies who would like to be involved in that fundraiser, it involves a meal and going to the Criterion Theater, and uh, it benefits the Pregnancy Center. So today is the day to sign up for that. You can get more info on your uh, bulletin. And then also, uh, you can stop by the info booth for all the details. I think there's a two-step sign-up process for this uh, because of the, uh, the show at the Criterion to get tickets. Also, uh, this next Wednesday, and all of the Wednesdays through summer, um, are on hiatus. Uh, and that is, with exce- one exception, the very first Wednesday of each month, uh, we will be having a worship night celebration. Sweet Tea Express is coming out to provide their awesome barbecue for us. And, uh, and then that also doubles as a fundraiser. And so uh, the proceeds of the first one here in June are going to be going to uh, the Feed My Starving Children program. And that's a, a wonderful blessing. So be sure to come out. There'll be games for the kids and, and uh, all kinds of activities for the night, including worship. Uh, and then the second one is in August, and that is the first Wednesday of August. We're skipping July because July 4th, it falls on a Wednesday, and we want you to be out with your friends and family and, and uh, your community groups and neighbors celebrating on that day. Um, and so there won't be a first Wednesday night on, in July, but in August it, it comes up again. And then thirdly, this last Friday, um, or this last week sometime, an email went out to all of the members in our database that just said, hey, we have a need for volunteers for the summer. And especially as summer rolls around, lots of people are traveling. There's lots of, you know, uh, kinds of folks that that aren't able to show up for uh, the ways in which they volunteer here at the church. And so we, we have needs during the summer for both alternates and people who will faithfully uh, be able to be there during the summer. So uh, please make sure that you sign up for that. One quick note on that. I think this is worth celebrating. We sent that email out at the end of the week, this last week. And by this morning, Aaron updated me just before first service to say, hey, all of the needs for the babies and the toddlers are met. People just immediately, they got that email. They responded. They said, hey, we're, we're all in. We, we love this place. We want to serve and be a part of that. And so they stepped up to help out with, uh, with the kids. We're also still looking for some backup alternates. So don't let that, don't go, oh, the need is met. You no longer need me. I'm uh, out of obligation here. Um, please do sign up. Please be a part of that. And we thank you for those who are willing to lay down their lives in the service of uh, the body here at Heritage. It truly is. It's a blessing uh, because there's a lot of folks that come in here that this is a refuge for them. To, be, to walk through the doors and sit down in these seats to hear the word of God um, is a very precious time for them. And the fact that you would serve them in that way is a huge, huge blessing to the folks that come here. So thank you for being a part of that. Uh, and, and then lastly, uh, Jeff is not able to make it today. Unfortunately, he came down with strep throat, which is absolutely awful. So that took him out. Uh, he, he FaceTimed into our meeting. I was half tempted to show a picture of him because he's literally laying on the floor. He had Asher, his, his sidekick, his, you know, uh, fourth child, like snuggled up next to him. And he was like, trying to pay attention during the meeting because he was just so wiped. So we want to pray for him before we get started and lift our brother and our pastor, our friend, up to Jesus. 
So would you bow your heads? And we'll pray for him and for us. Father, we, we do lift up Jeff to you. Lord, we thank you for his heart to pastor this church, to want to teach faithfully your word. And we know, Lord, that he would love to be here this morning with us. He, he, he loves this place. He loves the people here. And, uh, and for whatever reason, Lord, just be it living fallen, in a fallen world or be it your hand, he's at home this morning. I just pray for rest for his soul, rest for his body. I ask for healing for him, Lord. And this morning, since it means that his family also will, will probably be at home with them, God, I just pray that that would be a really precious time, that it would be redeemed in every way, that their time together uh, this morning would be graced by your presence, that it would be rich for them as a family and filled with joy, despite his, his physical sickness. So bless him and heal him. Bring him back soon, Lord, we pray. And Father, for us this morning, as we come to your word, we recognize that uh, it is easy for us to hear selectively, to pick and choose the things that we love. We have a tendency, Lord, to seek out affirmation. That's a part of how we're put together. And, and yet at the same time, that can work against us because we can dismiss uh, things without intention. So God, give us sharp ears this morning. Give, give us hearts that are ready to receive your word, ready to act on it. Father, I pray that you would help us to come to the text and to our time of teaching with fresh perspective and a renewed desire, Lord, to hear and obey and walk in your truth. So God, fill your people with your spirit. Draw them close to you through the scriptures. And as we listen to the words of Jesus, may they instruct us today. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Amen. Okay, Luke chapter 10. We're going to be picking it up in verses 25 to 37. Before we dive in, true story. So Jeff texted me yesterday. I woke up to his text saying, hey, man, I, I am still down, and I don't think I'm going to be better uh, by tomorrow. So can you, can you fill in for me? Yep, no problem. Awesome. Glad to do it. And then looking ahead at my day, you know, I had some things that were already planned out, and my daughter had a play. And, uh, and then I also told the neighbor that I would come over and help him re-roof his house. And so by the time, you know, the, the day wrapped up, uh, it was like after 8 o'clock uh, that we finished up on the roof up there and, and laid down all the, um, all the underlayment. And, uh, and I, I, what I really, I was having like this argument with myself. Like I, I should tell my neighbor, listen, I'm sorry to let you down or, and... Um, I didn't want to, but, you know, this kind of got thrown on me last minute, and I want to prepare and, and everything else. And, but then my text today is the parable of the Good Samaritan. <laughs> and, and in addition to that, the question that the lawyer is asking here is, uh, who is my neighbor? I'm like, this is my literal neighbor. I'm about to bail on him because I want to, you know, study for sure. I'm like, I can't do that. What kind of a teacher will I be if I'm not living it out? Um, so if it, if it's terrible this morning, I blame the conviction of the Holy Spirit and, uh, you guys are going to get what I could come up with between, you know, about 830 last night and, and this morning. And by the grace of God, uh, since it's his word, I, I think that we'll all profit together. Amen. So let's go ahead and read through the text and then we're going to chop it up and try and dissect it here. Verse 25, and behold, a, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? 
And he answered, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said unto him, you have answered correctly. Good job. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and, and when he saw him, he passed by to the other side. And so likewise, a, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by to the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, Well, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. I love Jesus' strategy here. You see, Jesus is always aiming at the heart of the people around him. It's always really easy to give uh, imperatives, to give commands, to say, do this, don't do that. But one of the things that Jesus is so masterful at is picking at the heart of the person who is there to get them to engage with the reality of the truth, the reality of what God is saying to them. So when this lawyer, probably a Pharisee, is seeking to test Jesus and says to him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, rather than giving him an answer, answers with another question. What do you think? How do you read it? I love this. You see, what that does is it puts the responsibility back on this lawyer. Now all of a sudden, he's having to go, okay, um, what do I think the point is? How, how do I have eternal life? What does that look like? He's having to process for himself by not giving the answer, by withholding the answer and asking questions. He's engaging the heart of the hearer. This is such a practical tool in the hands of those who have a heart to hear. Parents, disciples, people who are in care professions, people who desire to do ministry to others. Get good at asking questions. Get good at provoking internal dialogue in the hearts of others. There's so much fruitfulness in it. Well, we're going to take our time to, to pick through this now. We're going to divide it up into sort of three different file folders. So there's three headings that we're going to take a look at. First of all, verses 25 to 29, the reason for the parable. The reason for the parable. Verses 25 to 29. Second of all, verses uh, 30 through 35, the rebuke within the parable. And then thirdly, verses 36 to 37, the resolution of 
the parable. So those of you who are taking notes, those are sort of your three file folders. We're going to fit everything in within that framework. And there'll be subpoints and, and that kind of a thing to make it easy for you to take notes. So let's start with the reason for the parable. Why does Jesus launch into telling this story? What, what, what's going on here? Well, there's this question that comes up. And so the first part of this, the reason for the parable, is the lawyer's question. The lawyer's question. The lawyer is asking a big question about how to have eternal life. Now, that phrase, eternal life, is an interesting one. I think for most of us, when we hear eternal life, what we're thinking of is like um, life after we die. We're thinking like clouds, little fat cherubs, harps, angels, the whole deal, right? That's what, we, that's what we imagine when we think eternal life. And so sometimes when we come to this, we, we read this in terms of thinking only about like the afterlife. But it's actually interesting here. The, the phrase eternal life, the word life there in the Greek is zoe, zoe, Z-O-E. And, it, and it's, so, it's such a richer um, word than just the idea of the capacity to live. The idea is the full orb of a full life. The capacity to enjoy all that life provides. And so let me give you some examples here. For example, how the, uh, how the scriptures use this idea of eternal life. So John 3, 16, that's one we're all familiar with, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Okay, so that's one we're familiar with. And it's, it's not real clear though. Is he speaking of the life that comes after we die or is there something different? So let's continue on through the book of John. We'll look at a couple of other ones. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 4, 14. But whoever drinks of the water, this is Jesus talking, that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. There's a present tense application. It's not just the afterlife. If you believe in me, all of a sudden this spring comes bubbling up and, and it forms into eternal life. John five twenty four. truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 6, 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Over and over and over again, in John 6, 27, John 6, 40, John 6, 47, this phrase, eternal life, is used again and again. But it's not used solely in terms of the life after, but it's also used in reference to the life now. Life that begins now. And so the idea is a life that is like a sponge that is wrung out. Everything that you have the capacity to do in enjoying life, the full life, the good life, eternal life is the Zoe life. Now, this is really highlighted for us in John 17 verse 3. Where Jesus defines this for us. He says, and this is eternal life. He's praying for his disciples that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So listen, this is how Jesus sums up eternal life. He says, this is eternal life. That they might know you, God. And your son whom you've sent. That is eternal life. Listen, when Jesus says that they might know you, he's not simply saying like intellectual, theological knowledge. It's not like I know you like I know the president. Okay, I can say his name, but I, I don't know the president. 
Rather, it's the idea of, of, of a knowledge of a person that is the same as like the way that I know my kids or the way that I know my wife. I, like, I, I get 75% of the time. Okay, 65% of the time. I get who she is and how she works. There's still a lot for me to discover. She's mysterious. The idea is that we get his heart, we get God's heart, we get an understanding of who Jesus is, and, and, and as a result of that, there's a reliance upon his character, there's a trust in who he is and his intention, there's, there's a, a sense of dependence upon him that anchors us to him in, in such a way that, that it's not just intellectual knowledge, it's a personal dependence upon God. And his son. So this, he says, this is what eternal life is. The life that is full. The life that is wrung out. The Zoe life. Is only found in knowing God. And knowing his son. Life lived the way that it was intended to live. To the fullest. With the the most capacity. Means that we know and rely upon. And live in and with God. Pastor and author Andrew Womack put it this way. He said many people have mistakenly thought. That the goal of salvation is the forgiveness of sin. To avoid hell. That's not what John 3.16 is saying. Sure, not perishing in hell is an important part of what Jesus came to do. And he accomplished that by paying for the debt of all of our sins. Past, present, and even the ones that haven't been yet committed. If that's all there is to salvation, that's more than any of us deserve. And it would still be worth preaching. But salvation is much, much more than getting our sins forgiven so that we can go to heaven instead of hell. Let me say it this way. If all you did was ask Jesus to forgive your sins so you wouldn't perish in hell, then you are missing out on eternal life. Why is this so misunderstood? Why why is it like that? What? Probably it is because the church has changed the message of salvation. They, they, they placed a period after the word perish in John 3.16. They've told the world that the reason God sent his son to die for their sins was so that they wouldn't perish, period. And that excludes the true message of eternal life and intimate relationship with God as the goal of salvation. What was lost through sin is restored through the cross. This message was so radical, so powerful, that in Rome, Christians knew their God so intimately that they sang his praises as they were burned at the stake. They sang hymns. There's historical accounts of Caesar Nero putting his fingers in his ears and, and saying this phrase, why must these Christians sing? They had much more than a doctrine and hope. They had a present tense relationship that allowed them to endure with joy terrible atrocities. There are historical accounts of Romans when witnessing the joy of these Christians who were being martyred, jumping out of the stands and then rushing to them. They knew that they would be doomed with the same fate, but they willingly accepted this death so that they could know God in the same close, intimate, and personal way as these Christians. So let let me ask you a question here. And it's not intended to condemn, but really it's a a question about our hearts. It's a question that is meant to enlighten and make us think. How many people would die to have what you have? If people are looking into your life and they see 
the example of what it means to live a wrung out, full, eternal life in the Lord. How many people would be like, sign me up, I don't care what it costs me, I want what that guy has, I want what that gal has. If not, then may I suggest that though we may be in many ways experiencing cultural Christianity, we may be experiencing the beauty and the grace of being a part of a church, but we may not be experiencing the full life that God has offered. The good life, the eternal life, the Zoe life, is knowing Jesus in such a way that you experience his life in and through you. You ever been around somebody who is just full of Jesus? Somebody that's been like soaking in the Lord and you're just like, man, that is awesome. I want more of that. See, that's the way we're intended to live as believers. We're supposed to be this fragrance that enters the earth, right? And, and all of a sudden people are like, Fall on their nose. Like, where is that? Like, like when summer hits and people start barbecuing in the neighborhood. You, you, you guys know what I'm talking about? Or all of a sudden you're at your house and you've just got this, you know, normal meal. It's like maybe a salad because your wife's trying to be healthy. and You're trying to get rid of your dad bod. And I'm not saying that that's me. I'm just like, I've heard stories about people that have this kind of problem. And then all of a sudden, the smell of barbecue comes wafting along your lawn while you've got your, your green salad with ultralight dressing. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, to be my neighbor today. Oh, if I could just be over there instead of here with this salad, over there where the, the grease flows off the grill the land of milk and honey across my neighbor's fence that's the kind of effect that we're to have in the world this, this fragrance right that people see in us the life of god flowing in us and through us in such a way that they go man i would die to have that i would die to have that So we see the lawyer's question is the reason for Jesus' story. But not only that, but also the lawyer's assumption. Jesus is ex trying to explain to him what eternal life is, but also there's an assumption that the lawyer is making. There are several of them. Because the lawyer here, he comes up with the right answer to Jesus' question. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're the expert. You're the lawyer. You tell me, what do you think God wants from you? What does that full life look like? What does eternal life look like? And he answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So the lawyer comes up with the right answer, but he assumes a couple of things. And, and that's really revealed in the following verses in 28 and 29, when Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. You will have the Zoe. You will have that full life. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Can you tell what part he's struggling with? You see how that's revealed? So which one's the neighbor? Now, that's where lawyers play. Definition, right? I, I, one of my favorite Mark Driscoll quotes from back in the day, he said, having children is like living with small attorneys. <laughs> because they're always trying to negotiate, right? And said, I can't have a popsicle, but can I have a sucker? So bedtime is at 9.30. Does that mean I start getting ready for bed at 9.30? They're always, they're, they're working the definitions and trying to find the way around, right? That's exactly what this lawyer 
is doing. He probably has a mom who is really frustrated with him somewhere. Because he's, he's finding the definition and then trying to work his way around. So now, who is my neighbor? Is that by location or, you know, is that within one block? How does that really work out? Now, the lawyer makes an assumption. First of all, the lawyer assumes that God is pleased with him and that he's keeping the first part of that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? So he thinks, oh, yeah, that one I've got. Well, why would he think that? Well, because he's a lawyer. <laughs> he, he, he works with the law of God, studying it. So he's like, theologically, I know a lot of stuff. So God must be happy with me. Being a lawyer probably also means that he was likely a part of uh, the Pharisee movement and possibly a part of the Sanhedrin. And, and here, this lawyer is, is, is an expert in the law, and he is now trying to find a way around the law. But he thinks, oh, I, I go to worship, I am in the temple, I know theological stuff, I do all the sacrifices, I tithe even down to mint and cumin, I separate out the seeds so that God gets the tenth and I get, you know, the rest, and I am doing all the stuff that is required, so God must be happy with me. But the point of knowing God and knowing his word is not so that we can just perform a list of do's and don'ts. It's so that we might abide in him and that his life, like life from a vine, might translate into fruitfulness in our lives. That's the point. It's not a list of to do's and don'ts. It's the life of Christ being displayed through us. So the lawyer assumes that God is pleased with him. And the lawyer assumes that his only struggle is with people. So here's where he's like, okay, I don't love all my neighbors. So which ones do I have to love? Right? But which are the ones that are actually my neighbor? And so here in the third point here, we see not only the lawyer's question and the lawyer's assumption, but also the lawyer's justification. Okay, if the only place that I struggle is with loving my neighbor, I need to know who qualifies as a neighbor. And he's trying to justify himself. I want to be at peace and not have to change anything. I want God's principles to be applicable to my life without me actually having to do something about them. I want all the blessing of God's presence and his favor upon my life with only a limited amount of sacrifice. Listen, lawyers seek definition to excuse what they do not want to do. Disciples look for the heart of God in order to live like him. Oh man, I, 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 over the course of time in me following Jesus, I can't tell you how many times I've had to come back to a text and repent. The text has never changed. It's been there the whole time. I have read the Bible cover to cover multiple times. I have taught through almost all of the books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And yet, I will come across some passage and go, oh man, I must have highlighted that one with a black magic marker. Somehow I, I skipped over that principle, over that truth, it, what, it did not stand out to me, or my life has shifted in such a way that I am also different in my maturity, and I see the depth of what is there, and I'm having to come back and repent afresh. 
Listen, disciples say, here is what God has said. Now I mold my life to that. Lawyers say, here's what I want my life to be, and I'll see if I can fit God's word into it and around my life. Be a disciple. Don't be a lawyer. Come to God's word with an openness to his spirit that says, Lord, show me the truth that I might live, that I might have eternal life, the full life, the one that you offer. So in verses 30 to 35, we get the rebuke uh, within the parable, the rebuke within the parable. There are really four categories of rebuke here. There's a rebuking of religious pride. There's a rebuking of racial prejudice. There's a rebuking of political division. And there's a rebuking of practical excuses. The first one, rebuking religious pride. Listen, the priest in the parable here has a job outside of the parable, just his title, the priest, says something about who he is. You see, it's the priest's job to represent God to the people. The temple is this, it, it's this overlapping place where the abode, the presence of God, is meeting with man on the earth, and the, the, the earth is, 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 the temple becomes this place where the two realms meet, where God's presence and the, the presence of God's people can come together. And that's made possible through sacrifice and, and ritual and all these other things that are a display of what God would do through his son. So the priest's job then, in that space, in that holy space, the overlap of, of God's presence and, and the presence of man, the priest's job is to represent God to mankind and mankind to God through intercessory prayer. Now, let's think about what might have been happening with the priest. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. A lot of times priests didn't li actually live in Jerusalem. They lived in outlying areas. Levites also uh, did not have a, a home uh, territory. They, they lived kind of spread out, dispersed throughout the land of Israel. And so when their lot would come up, to be able to go serve in the temple, they would travel from where they were and they would go and stay in Jerusalem and take care of the things that related to the temple. So probably this priest is, is, is either traveling for business or traveling home, right? And he's leaving Jerusalem. And, and why would he be there in Jerusalem? Probably because he was serving in the temple in some capacity. Now, he leaves that place of worship. He's beginning to make his way. And as he's walking up in the road is a man who is naked and beaten and bruised and is likely going to die on the side of the road. And so the priest comes up and as he gets there, he's starting to have to calculate, right? Like, what? What should I do? What will I do? Uh, how should I respond? I see this person. They're possibly going to die. So he gets to that point, and then he makes a choice. And he cuts around the body of that person and continues on his journey. You see, the priest was supposed to be the representation of God's heart to Israel. But was that God's heart for this man? The Levite is in much the same category. They have no possession of their own in the land of promise. Why? Because the Lord is their portion. He's supposed to be living in such a way in day-to-day -day life that he, he says, God is everything that I need. He is all that I desire. It's his heart in line with my heart. That's, that's what I'm living for. I'm living for God's purpose, his glory, his kingdom, set apart and dedicated to him. But when he gets up to the man laying in the road, he also begins to calculate and moves to the side. 
Now, in some ways, their religious values probably insulated them from having to care. What do you mean by that? How do religious values keep you from having to care? Well, the priest could say, man, look, it's already been a long month of service or week of service in the temple. I have literally been covered in blood and smoke all week long. If I, I just got clean and I'm on my way home, and if I help this guy out once again, I'm going to be cut. It's just more work. I'm off duty. It's not within my paid hours. I could be soiled. Let's be tainted by this guy. Or, or, or maybe both of them, they could, they could have chalked it up to the sovereignty of God. That's one of the things that they, this is a nice little technique that you can use if you're a religious person, where you, you see a need, you see somebody hurting, you see that they, they need help, and, and instead you go, well, who am I to intervene in the hand of God in their life? God is sovereign. Maybe their suffering is, is God's will. Maybe their sin brought this on them. I don't know their story, so why get involved? Let's just trust the Lord with them. And, and, and then you skirt around the need, the issue. Or maybe, maybe they just said in their hearts, hey, listen, the trip to Jerusalem, it was enough. I mean, God's got to be happy with me. I was just in Jerusalem serving and working and caring about the things of God. I was just doing all the work that was there. Surely that is enough. What more could God expect from me? He must be pleased with me because of my religious duty and my religious responsibility. I don't need to get involved in this. What I've done for the Lord is enough. But here's the reality. Both the Levite and priests were returning from Jerusalem where they worshipped in the presence of God, where they saw the blood on the altar, where they worked at intercession, where they saw sins being forgiven, where they saw all of it happening. They sang hymns. They lit the, the, the torch that was in the, the menorah that was in the, the, ta- uh, the, uh, the temple. They were part of seeing all of it. They saw the worshipers come from miles around and they served the people. But here is the problem. They were unchanged by the worship. They had done the duty. They had done what was required, but they were unchanged at the core of their being, at the heart of who they were, by the worship that they had done. They were unchanged by attending spiritual worship services. They were still living unto themselves. And so he is rebuking their religious pride. Second of all, he's rebuking racial prejudice. You see, by using a Samaritan in this story, when when Jesus in verse 33 says, but a Samaritan, I have to think in my my mind that, that Jesus is sort of like his tone maybe, is giving away that this is like the punchline. Like, you guys know, like, three people walk into a bar, right? A priest, a rabbi, and a, you know, and there's always the third guy is where the punchline comes. You guys know that, right? Okay, Jesus is kind of doing the same thing. He he gave two examples of really holy people, and then the third guy is the anti-hero. He's the guy you don't expect. He's the guy that nobody is voting for, Right? He's the punchline of the story, if you will. So I have to think that when Jesus says, a Samaritan, that there was this sort of tone like, the despised and hated, the loathed and lowly Samaritan. And when he makes him the hero, he is calling out, most likely, this lawyer's prejudice, his racial prejudice. Why? Well, because Samaritans 
were sort of the backwoods ghetto residents of the land of Israel. They were the castaways of society. They were the ones that the Israelites looked down on, those that were in Judea, the Jews. That's where the word Jew comes from, those who lived in Judea. Uh, they looked down on the Samaritans because when the Assyrians invaded Israel, they had this practice where they would take people from other cultures and plant it in the culture that they had conquered, and then they would take people from that culture and plant them in other cultures, and they would mix people up to steal away their cultural identity so that they would begin to accept their conqueror's identity. They would begin to embrace the change and identify with a new people group instead of holding to their own cultural identity. It was a wartime strategy, if you will. And so those who remained pure in Judea, who had not married outside of uh, the house of Israel, who had, who had kept the commandments of God, who were still worshiping in Jerusalem, were looking down on the Samaritans because they were the land of compromise. They were the half-breeds. They were not true Israelites. They were not true citizens of God's people. They had their own worship practices where, that were not sanctioned by the scriptures. And as a result, they looked down on them and said, hey, these half-breeds are no people. Matter of fact, they would sometimes walk all the way around the land of Samaria to not have to set foot in it. Or sometimes if they had to go through it, they just like for the sake of time, they would go through it. As soon as they stepped out of the land of Samaria, they had this practice where they would take the dust of their feet and shake the dust of Samaria so they would track the dust of Samaria into the Holy Land. And Jesus is rebuking this racial prejudice. The poor and the persecuted often have greater empathy because they know what it is like to be used. When Jesus uses the Samaritan as an example of compassion and mercy, he is saying to the lawyer, hey, listen, this guy over here that you hate he gets what it means to be a neighbor better than you do. By making him the hero, <laughs> what he's doing is saying, look, the guy that you think is a total doofus when it comes to theology, the guy that you think is a half-breed and a sellout and doesn't deserve to be a part of God's people, the guy you shake the dust of your feet off at, that guy gets it better than you do. And he's rebuking his racial prejudice. Isn't it interesting that the poor and persecuted are the ones that oftentimes will act in ministries of mercy and compassion? Notice the Samaritan. Imagine him. He comes up to the body. It's there in the middle of the road. And, and, and he, he sees it. And immediately he has compassion on him. Why? Because he can go, I know what it's like to be hated. I know what it's like to be abused. I, I, I get what it's like to be poor, to be left and abandoned. I, I get what it's like to not think that anybody is going to help or care for you. He, he gets it. Like he understands pain already, right? So when he sees the guy on the road, his heart breaks for him. He has compassion on him. And there's this sense in which Jesus is using the Samaritan to provoke this privileged lawyer and say to him, essentially, God delights in using the weak and broken things to confound the wise. This Samaritan, he's the one you need to learn from in order to know how to have a full life. You should learn from him. He's rebuking racial prejudice. He's rebuking political division. By using the Samaritan, Jesus is poking at an age-old political issue that has plagued Israel. You see, Samaritans were not considered true patriot, patriots to Israel. They were compromisers. They weren't real patriots. Samaritans were not considered truly religious conservatives because they took liberties with God's word that Israelites didn't agree with. 
They were outside the theological boundaries. And so in, in, in that scenario, what the Israelites did, or excuse me, what the, the, those who lived in Judea did, they said that the Samaritans then were basically throwaway people. They're disposable humans. The crazy thing is, as Jesus is rebuking this political division, I can see no better parallel from then to today than social media. Listen, I have seen brothers and sisters here in this sanctuary, who I will not point out, who I have lifted hands with, worshipped with, studied the scriptures with, came under the same influence of the Holy Spirit with, get online and over some random political issue, treat somebody like they're the dirt of the earth, like they're disposable humans because they don't agree with some political issue. Shame on us. Shame on us. If there is any chance to display the gracious love of God. There is no better chance than the moment where you disagree with somebody and you still give them grace. Where you come to them and you say, hey, you know, I'm not, I, I may not agree with you. I actually don't like your opinion at all. I think it's a terrible, terrible position. But I love you, brother. I love you, friend. I care about you. And I refuse to treat you like you're a disposable human over an issue. Over how you voted. Over what you think about guns. Over what you think about some political thing. How you feel about refugees. How you feel about, you know, what evolution, the age of the earth. Whatever. It doesn't matter. We have an opportunity to display the grace of God when we don't agree. And here's part of the problem, guys. We are losing our voice in the world. Do you know why? Because we get caught up in the same drama as everybody else. We aren't showing the world anything different. Friends, brothers, sisters, we have to be the salt of who God is. To bring that into the world. And, and, and Jesus here is rebuking this political division that is culturally relevant to this lawyer. And he is rebuking that division, I believe, in us as well. The overall point of this is that people with religious pride don't get the heart of God for their neighbor. People with prejudice don't get the heart of God for their neighbor. People with political agendas don't get the heart of God for their neighbor. God loves his enemies. That's the heart of God. God loves the people who argue with him, who shake their fist at him. God is seeking to save the rebellious and the lost. Not only is he rebuking Religious pride and racial prejudice and political division, but he is rebuking practical excuses. As you go through the story of the Samaritan here, the Samaritan has lots of off ramps, lots of places where he can make an excuse and go, Oh man, I, I, I don't know. I don't, should I get involved? First of all, as he even approaches the body and sees that he is a, a, a Jew and he's a Samaritan, he knows that the guy on the ground hates him. The guy on the ground doesn't want anything to do with him, sees him as a half-breed. He, he, he despises the Samaritan. The Samaritan could, I think, by logic, just go, well, he hates me, oh well, and walk around. That's what he could have done. The Samaritan knew he was hated by the victim. The Samaritan would be delayed on his journey, just like everybody else. He'd be inconvenienced. The Samaritan would get blood and dirt on himself. Notice verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He, he's losing some of his resources. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn that took care of him. 
Okay, if he put the naked man who was beaten and bruised on his animal, what's the Samaritan doing? He's walking. His journey just got a lot harder, huh? Then when he finally gets him to the inn, he cares for him all night. I remember one particular family camp where a, a person who shall remain nameless, who I dearly love, and I'm hoping can take this story, <laughs> was stung by a bee on his foot. It was awful persecution by nature. And he started to have kind of a, a reaction to this where um, he was feeling sick to his stomach and sweating and like uh, just in a, 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 an incredible amount of pain. And we were like, eh, we take him to the hospital. You know, what, what do we got going on? But he, he's trying to tough it out and he wasn't having any of the other things like swelling throat and you know, all that other stuff. Uh, so once we were convinced that he wasn't going to die, he just kind of laid in his tent and his tent was close to our tent. But, but, but he was moaning. Like, ah, ah, oh my God. Ah. Which is fine, but there's like a moaning time limit. You know what I mean? Like you, you can moan for like two minutes and then everybody, like we get it, okay. You got stung by a bee, I'm sorry. That's, like we get it, right? But I hear, I, I'm, the, I'm the, the priest, the Levite, who's like, oh, hey, can you keep it down over there? Hey, can you, you stop, just stop suffering for a minute because you're disturbing my peaceful environment. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be with a person who was half dead all night long in the inn. Probably had to give up his bed. He paid for the end, but he probably slept on the floor. And listen while the man who was in pain tossed and turned, maybe relived the experience of what he'd been through. I don't know if he had to change dressings or care for him in the middle of the night or get him water or... You ever stay up with a kid all night who's sick? You know what that's like? There's a major sacrifice that's involved here. The Samaritan would have to walk. The Samaritan would have to exercise compassion and care. The Samaritan would lose money in the practice of mercy. It was not practical to help in any way, shape, or form. It cost him tremendously. He left enough money really to care for the guy for about two months from one commentator that I read and said if it takes any longer than that for him to heal, I'll pay for the balance of that when I come back through. It cost him greatly to care, to have compassion. And essentially Jesus is saying to the lawyer, if the Samaritan who you despise, who you see as a, a, a half-breed, as a spiritual nitwit, who you don't agree with in anything, if he is willing to sacrifice for the sake of having mercy and compassion, do you have any excuse whatsoever? Jesus is rebuking the practical excuses. In verses 36 to 37, there are three things that we'll be looking at the, under the heading, the re resolution of the parable. We'll be looking at the meaning of mercy, the merriness of mercy, and the master of mercy. First of all, the meaning of mercy. Listen. Mercy means allowing your heart to be affected by others. It means a certain amount of vulnerability. I love the word that is found in the text here. When it says in verse 33, but the Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. 
The word compassion, when broken down, the prefix C-O-M, means with. With. And then passion, the second half of the word, means to suffer, like the passion of the Christ. So the idea is that the word compassion means to suffer with. To suffer with. When the text says that he had mercy on him, when he demonstrated compassion, he's saying that the, the man on the road, when the Samaritan saw him, it was that man's pain in the Samaritan's heart. And compassion for you and me is having someone else's pain in our hearts. Where we're vulnerable enough to go, God, that hurts me to think that you are having to endure this. I have to do something in response. I have to help. I have to do something. I have to be a part of the suffering that is happening. I can't just hold all that in and pretend like nothing is wrong and skirt around the issue and go my merry way. It, it, it's motivating me to do something because your pain is my pain. That's the meaning of mercy. Now, the interesting thing is I, I know some people who, who claim that they have the gift of mercy and they, they are indeed very compassionate people. Here's one thing that I've noticed about extremely empathetic, extremely compassionate people is that sometimes also they like to wallow in the, the tragedy of it. But, but mercy isn't just so you can suffer with for the sake of adding to the suffering. They go, oh, oh this life is so hard, isn't it? I just hate it. I just, I hate all this. I hate it. I'm so glad to be here suffering with you. Isn't this awful? That's not what we do, right? The mercy ministry, the compassion ministry is your pain is in my heart. So how can we fix it together? How can we move towards wholeness? How can we remedy this issue? Listen, the good life the full life, the Zoe life, eternal life is not found in living unto yourself, but in living with God's life and love flowing through you. It is a profound joy to give your life away. It's a profound joy to sacrifice for others. How do I know that? I have kids. Who knows that? Moms know that. Husbands know that. Wives know that. Dads know that. People who work in service industries know that. Public servants know that. Care professionals know that. They know that in giving their lives away and caring for others, there's a tremendous payback that happens. Your life gets so much more full when you allow yourself to care about others. And it becomes what is sorrowful to endure becomes a joy and a delight to your heart. This is the merriness of mercy. Now why does all this matter? Why, does, why do we even care about this? Because of the master of mercy. Listen, the reason this is an issue is that the man on the side of the road who was beaten and broken and bruised is you. It's me. And the one who was despised and rejected saw our suffering and our pain. And our pain was in his heart. And he began to say, I have to do something about this. Let me enter into the suffering with you. Not so that we can stay there, but so that we can move towards wholeness. And our good Samaritan entered into our suffering and he bore our burdens and he led us to wholeness and he paid the price for us and he sacrificed himself and his, our pain was in his heart and on his shoulders. And he bore it all and then he said, okay, here's what he's saying. 
Now I have saved you that I might then live through you. And he took his spirit and he put his spirit inside of us that our heart might be the same as his heart. That we might be the representation of Jesus in this world. So what do we say in response to this parable? The only thing that we can say is what Jesus said. Now that you've heard the truth, you go. You. You go. And do likewise. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it brings to light afresh the truth and reminds us of what you're like. Reminds us of the great mercy that, you've been, that you have given to us, that you have poured out to us. May we be vessels of your mercy, a fragrance to the world. May we be salt and light and a city on a hill. May this group of people, having been formed by your word and by the working of your spirit, be a people of compassion. Shape us by your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.